Today's episode is sponsored by I Love Toast and their new game, Escape from Flat Earth, which is on Kickstarter right now. Escape from Flat Earth is a semi-cooperative narrative-creating card game for one to five players set in a world inspired by sci-fi classics. Commanding a group of three crew members in potentially fatal fashion, each player is dealt three red suits as they explore a planet that mocks both physics and reason. Discover events, play actions, build the timeline, and try to avoid the many attacks hidden on the flat planet as you compete for a life-saving change of clothes. Your ship has been marooned on a strange flat planet. The crew has been sent out in search of vital resources, but lethal dangers are found at every turn. And it begs the question, can anyone escape from flat Earth? So check out this narrative-creating card game for fans of sci-fi who should know better than to wear red on Kickstarter right now. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, looking behind the curtain. Today, we're getting into a little secret sauce. We're looking at the secret sauce of game design with Peter C. Hayward. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Gabe. Always a pleasure. Always love having you on the show. You're one of the guests. This is your third time being here. And the last two episodes you came on were just jam-packed with phenomenal information. I mean, I was taking notes the whole time. I know other people out there listening have been taking a lot of notes for your episode. So I'm excited to, to jump into this one. And now when we were talking through what this episode is about, like it, it really is the secret sauce. It is your game design process. You do things quite differently than uh, probably any other designer I've talked to, uh, definitely different than what I've been doing. And so I'm really excited to kind of see behind the curtain, see how you do things, see how you've brought so many games to life at Jelly Bean Games, your publishing company. But before we get into the secret sauce, who are you? Kind of tell people, you know, maybe where you've been, what you've been doing in the last year or so since you came on the show. Tell me about Peter C. Hayward and, and what life's doing. So I am the uh, guy behind Jellybean Games. I run the company. I make most of the games, not all. We, we sign games by other people. And I do a lot of dev both for the Jellybean Games and actually for games for other people as well. I'm uh, big, on, big on development, really enjoy it. And so what have I been doing the last year? We've just been been making games, making them better. Uh, we've put out a few, a few hits and... Oh man, <laughs> you prepared me for this question. I'm like, I don't know, uh, just just live in life. I actually just moved from Toronto, Canada down to Los Angeles, sunny LA. So that's that's the most exciting thing I've been up to. So I'm really keen to get into the game design community down here, meet some cool new people and play more games. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, with it being kind of right in the middle of wintertime, I feel like this is the best time to leave Toronto to go <laughs> to Los Angeles. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I've been walking a lot this year. I've been averaging about two to three hours of walking every single day. And I'll tell you, it's a very different experience doing those walking, doing those long walks in Los Angeles than it is in snowy Toronto. <laughs> yeah, but you probably have like 14 pounds less of clothing. Yeah, you're I had to, to buy or... sunscreen. I was like, oh yeah, sunscreen <laughs> from when I was a kid. I remember this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You're yeah, in shorts. In... It's a crazy time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I lived in Los Angeles for several months and uh, I lived there, I think, let's see, October, November, uh, December. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was just so awesome that it was, you know, nice every day. You walk out and it's like, oh, it's it's nice again today. Every day is just nice. <laughs> it rained uh, once and I was like, I thought that didn't happen here. This is crazy. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, I'm really excited for uh, you know just different things you got going on in your personal life and the opportunities to move. And, and so I'm really excited to see kind of where things take you, uh, both personally and you know professionally with Jellybean Games and, and other things that you're jumping into. And uh, let's let's talk about Jellybean Games. Talk about your publishing process, your design process, because the secret sauce really it goes hand in hand uh, with a lot of what you're doing, both individually as a di- designer and also as a company. And so. Let, where do we start? I want, I want to frame this conversation almost like you as the teacher, me as the student, teach me your ways. Oh, wise Yoda, you know, and, uh, let me no understand. Um, yeah, no doubt. But let me understand what's going on. So like, where would you begin? What would be the, the class number one? Tell me about your secret sauce. Let's go. So I, I think of it as secret sauce just because it gives my game something that I'm not saying no one else has, but it definitely, it feels like it gives me an edge, especially for accessibility. So Jellybean Games, our whole thing is that all of our games can be played by kids by themselves, by adults by themselves, or kids and adults together having a good time. So we are we are very much a gateway game company. And actually, I've been spending a lot of time with some friends who are new gamers, and that's been really delightful. A, because I get to show them all these games, and they're like, wow, Peter, how did you know about Castles of Mad King Ludwig, this obscure game? And I'm like, oh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my friends, it's uh, it's really not. But, you know, today it, it relatively is. If you're brand new to gaming today, it's not one of the first games you'll pick up. Uh, and secondly, because it's let me see how they play games. And as brand new gamers, uh, they just played the new runner, Knizia, or new, the, the Sp- Spiel de Yard winner, um, the, road, the, the El Dorado one, whatever that's called. And that was their first deck builder. And, you know, if you're an experienced gamer, you know deck builders, you know them very well. But that was their first deck builder. So it's just really interesting watching them learn mechanisms and seeing what they do and don't like. And so because I run Jellybean Games and because I have these friends who are new gamers, I've been really heavily leaning into ease of, not ease of play necessarily, but accessibility. And accessibility means a lot of different things in this industry. And I'm not, I'm not exclusively talking about like colorblindness or anything like that, but how easy it is to get the game to the table. And that's where my process, I think, really shines. So with Jellybean Games, I want them to be as easy to get to the table as can be. And that means that you need to be able to learn them from the rules. You need to be able to learn them fast. You need to get them to the table fast. So what I do that I think is different to almost every other designer is I do blind playtesting as early and as often as I can. Uh, do you want to explain what blind playtesting is for the, for the listeners who might not know? Yeah, for sure. It's when you find a friend that has basically they can't see and you hand them the game and see if they can figure it out. <laughs> And, and then it's not you, in Braille. You, behind them and you throw stuff at them and they're like, who's throwing stuff? What's happening? That's right. And you have to make sure that their dog can also play. Um, no. Yes, yeah, so accessibility. I really meant it's got to... <laughs> All right. So blind playtesting is basically when you give the game to a group of people who have never interacted with the game. Uh, typically, you're not there. You're not in the room. And you're just saying, hey, here's the game. And figure it out. Figure out how to play it. And sometimes people film it so they can kind of watch uh, the game being played. Sometimes they just get feedback, you know, get notes and things like that uh, from the testers. But basically, you're just kind of putting it out into the world to see if it's any good, to see if it can work on its own. But the reason it's blind is because you're not explaining the game. You're not sitting there at the table teaching the game and then saying, okay, now it's play. You're just handing the box, handing the game to someone and saying, all right, good luck. Hope it works out. And uh, and just kind of seeing what happens. Is that a pretty good uh, definition? Absolutely. Yeah. I, most of the time, will be there. So, we, I mean, we have two stages of blind playtesting, but I'll get into that later. But most of the time, I will be there. I will hand them the box i'll hand them the rules i'll hand them all the components uh and i'm often there just because especially in early stages the components might not be super clear so like the rule book will say get all of the gear cards and i'll be like look it's not super clear but these are the gear cards stuff that in the final product i wouldn't need to be there for but it's not going to actually influence the way that they play 
And so the reason I do this so early and so often, and I didn't actually realize how strange this was until people started pointing it out to me of like, wow, you're blind playtesting this again? You've done this 15 times and the game's only a month old. What's happening? Is because it lets, it lets me see what people's actual experience will be with the game. So typically blind playtesting is reserved for quite late in the process. Once everything is nailed down, once you know the game works, once you know everything's, you know, ready to go, it's really just to test the rule book. I do it much, much, much earlier because it lets me know what is going to potentially hold the game back. So I'll talk about it with, with some Jelly Bean games. So we have a game coming out in probably the next few months called French Toast, and it's based on an old, like, a car game. Like, you'd sit in the car and you'd play French Toast, and I've always loved this game. Like, it's been one of my top five games of all time, uh, and I thought, you know what? I could actually turn this into a product. I could make this a Jelly Bean game. So I wrote down all the rules, and I made some cards, and I got it all ready, and I sat it down in front of people, and to my surprise, it bombed. It was a... Like it wasn't, it wasn't an unfun experience. They got what, what the game was going to be, but it was not the fun experience it is when I teach it. And that's the trick. If you get good at teaching games, you need to learn how to blind play test because often you will be inadvertently filling in the gaps yourself of what people, you know, if you're good at teaching games, then you are making it a better experience than it'll actually be when the game comes out. And I, to be extremely modest for a second, I'm quite good at teaching games. I've done this for a while now. And so I need to use the blind playtesting to show how, to simulate how it'll be when the game's actually played. So with French Toast, for example, um, it's it's a very simple game. Uh, and if, if I teach it to you in person, we all have a good time. It's great. But when people were learning from the rules, it was going incredibly slowly. And I realized that's because part of my teaching process was like, now make sure you don't take long on your turn. You know, it's a quick game. The faster you go, the more fun it is. But without without me saying that, people are going very, very slowly. And so they're having a really miserable time. And so for the next version of the rules, I put in, go fast. The faster you'll go, the more fun you'll have. But here's the thing. When you say it to someone, they're like, oh, okay, I know Peter. I know what he's talking about. When it's in the rules, it doesn't connect in the same way. So even though the rules literally said, go fast, it's more fun if you go fast, go quickly, people were playing this game incredibly slowly. And <laughs> when it's going slowly, it's, it's a drag. Like, honestly, it just doesn't work as a slow game. You need to go fast. And without the social pressure of me saying, hey, I told you to do this. I'm standing here watching you. People wouldn't do it. That's just an example of what I mean when I say sometimes your teaching ability is making the game better than it will be when you're not there. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, it's a really good point. Like, uh, that's one thing I've noticed in my own personal experience is, like you're saying, I fill in the gaps when I'm teaching the game that I know right. better than anyone else on the planet. It's easy for me to say things that aren't in the rule book or maybe they're nuanced, whether it's about little strategy things or, you know, on your first turn, you might want to do this or that. You know, you've got five options, but you exactly. might want to do this, this, the, yeah. these two options over here, probably not the best move. But if I'm just handing them the rule book, they're not going to know that. And they might do the unoptimal thing. And oh, oh, this is not as much fun. And so that's a really, really good point. Now, how in the world do you like, give me some advice on just shutting up? Because I feel like that's one, uh, like that's a lot of people's challenge. Like if they're doing this kind of testing, they sit over in the corner of the room and they go, mm -hmm, and like they make noises, you know, when somebody's doing something dumb or doesn't understand. I'm not going to lie. That is the hardest part of the process. Uh, so with my lighter games, I tend to get to blind play testing as soon as I can. Like I said, with French Toast, because I knew that concept worked because I've played it for years, I was like, I'm going to go straight to blind play testing. With another game we did, uh, Jabberwocky, I actually played it with my husband a few times. And I was like, okay, look, I know this is fun. I know this works. So the first time it was ever played by someone that wasn't me or my husband was blind playtesting, like just immediately the blind playtesting. With bigger games, you can't do that. It's I, 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 with a, like 
Uh, I just had a game in the as an Ion Award finalist called Robots, and that's a 90-minute game. And if it's the first time you're showing people a 90-minute game, I do not recommend blind playtesting. That's going to be miserable for you. It's going to be miserable for them. It's not helpful. So if, if it's a game where you've run it yourself and you've taught it a bunch, it's incredibly difficult to go from teaching and helpful to sitting in the corner unhelpful. So I flag it. I'm like, hey, guys. This is a process called blind playtesting. I'm going to give you the rules. You're going to pretend I'm not here. I'm going to sit here and watch you, and I am not going to be helpful. <laughs> You're going to run into trouble. That's what this is about. I need to watch you struggle. It's 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 a weird thing to do. I know it's a weird thing to ask, especially because I blind playtest with a lot of strangers. Uh, so I, I always say to them, I'm going to sit here like Jane Goodall and the Apes, and I'm just going to watch you and take notes. I'm sorry I can't help you. But it is definitely the hardest part. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And one thing I've, I just asked them a question right back. They'll say, you know, Hey, what do you, are we, what are we supposed to do here? How does this work? And I'll go, what do you think? Yeah. And I'll make them figure it out. And a lot of times yep. they're wrong, but that gives me notes to write down with things I need to clarify on the rules, or maybe I need to take something out of the game because it's just confusing and it doesn't actually help. But just turning the question back around and saying, I don't know, figure it out. What do you think? How do you think it should play? And they go, Oh, okay. And also I've run into situations where the way the rule was in the, in the, the rule book, they, they misinterpreted it but it was better the way that they misinterpreted it. Like, so that turned out, I was like, go ahead. That's exactly what I was going to say. That, that's why I call this the secret sauce. Uh, so to use robots as an example again, the, um, the, the big heavy Euro that I've been working on, there's a master robot mini that moves around the map. And for a long time, right up until blind playtesting, he would move from the corner of the map to the corner of the map to the corner of the map. So he had like his own special space, basically. Throughout the rest of the game, you're always playing robots on spaces. The worker placement game series, playing your, your workers who are robots on spaces. So I blind play tested that game with a group and they were like, well, he's a robot. He should go on spaces. And I was just sitting there scribbling notes being like, of course he should go on spaces. He's a robot. Robots go on spaces in this game. Completely transformed the way that game worked. Like I thought it was done. That was Origins last year. I went to that convention thinking, okay, this game is done. Now I'm just blind play testing. And yet, as soon as I saw that group make that quote mistake i was like that's so much better and part of it is because the way that people intuitively do things you know mistakes are us doing the most intuitive thing and games most of the time should be that they should be the more intuitive thing so i will quite often after a blind playtest go home and completely rewrite the game around their mistakes yeah, that's a really great point because you want to do what makes sense. That way, even if the, the players do get the rule wrong, but if they're getting it wrong in a way that makes sense, you know, that's kind of where, where you want to go. This happened with my hunted game for Kobayashi Tower, where there's a, a card that's grenade and it gives you a much bigger die to roll. And you're trying to hit target numbers for terrorists and things like that. And so let's say, you know, a terrorist has, let's say you're fighting two terrorists and there's a, a level five and a level three. Well, when you originally, when you threw a grenade, you threw a D8. And obviously that gives you a little bit better chance to hit yeah. than a D6. You know, you got the two extra numbers there. And so originally it was, okay, but you can only hit one terrorist, right? But it just gives you a better <laughs> chance of hitting them. And uh, in blind playtesting, someone sent back and they're like, hey, doesn't it make a whole lot more sense if like, it is a grenade? Like, wouldn't it be able to hit more people? Yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and so it, it turned into, for the grenade, it, it doesn't work. It works differently than other weapons. The grenade, you, you can add together right if i'm shooting i have to hit a target number i'm only shooting one person at a time yeah but with the grenade i can add it so if i rolled an eight then i could hit a five and a three because five plus three equals eight right. and it made a lot more sense and it came out of blind play testing and someone just saying hey doesn't this make more sense and it's like yes yes it does <laughs> so i think it's, it's such a valuable thing this is exactly why i've moved blind play testing from the end of the process to as early as i can once i know the game is stable once i know the game is working I will sit down, I will write rules, I will make diagrams, and I will do everything I can to get it blind playtested because it 
always makes the game better. I've never had a case where, you know, after blind playtesting, I'm like, well, that game somehow got worse. Like, that just doesn't happen. It always <laughs> makes the game better. And often it's surprisingly fundamental shifts, like surprising how much of a difference you will you will make from seeing someone, you know, something as simple as like, oh, I feel like this token should go here. The rules are not clear, so that's where I'm going to put it. I'm like, well, that's not right, but it's better. It's just so much better. Yeah, for sure. Well, I saw a uh, little, like a mini documentary years ago about, I can't remember if it was Crest or Colgate, one of the toothpaste companies. And they were talking about basically their process of creating a new product, a new product design, things like that. And they were discussing coming up with a new tube of toothpaste. And, and they went through all the different, like the engineering part, like there's so much that goes into it, way more than anyone would realize just to create a tube of toothpaste. And originally for this new tube of toothpaste to, uh, to get the top off, you just had to pull it. You just popped it, just, just popped it off. Right. Yeah. And it was really easy and it, and it clicked and it like it, everything worked. and It was great. And then they put it out to their testers just to kind of see, you know, they're testing the flavor, testing all the different things you have to test for toothpaste. And what they found was that nobody could get the top off because all anyone ever wanted to do was spin it. They just kept turning it over and over and over again. And they, you know, do it a few times and look at the people and go, hey, this is broken. <laughs> And the, exactly. the creators are like so frustrated. They're like, it's so much easier just to pop it off and it's less calories and it's all these different things. And they, they just had to scrap the whole thing because most of the people in testing just turned it because that's what they're used to. And so it's, you, yeah. uh, you spend your free time watching toothpaste documentary. <laughs> real yeah. inside of the life of Gabe Barrett. <laughs> that's what it is, man. YouTube is my drug of choice. I, I just go down the rabbit hole on so, so many things. Uh, I used to have a friend here in Honduras and we would almost like, try to outdo each other with the most obscure, ridiculous videos. Like one day I walked into his classroom and I said, Hey man, what are you doing? He goes, ah, just looking at videos about baked potatoes. <laughs> and of course he was. And so I would watch toothpaste videos and then share them with him. And we had, it was a good bonding moment, but anyway, it's all about testing and figuring out what works yeah. best for the person you're trying to sell it to or, or that's going to be playing it or using it. Exactly. I'll give you another example um, from a game I've got coming up. So Pandasaurus are doing my time travel game. It's a two-player time travel abstract uh, campaign game. Nice. And I, it was, I wanted to make the game entirely a deck of cards and, the, and the, the abstract components. So you learn the game. There's no rule book. You learn the game from a deck of cards. So you open the box, there's a deck of cards. And so to make sure this worked, I made the deck of cards. And I spent a lot of Origins last year getting people to blind playtest this deck of cards, essentially. And one group did something fascinating, which is they, they looked at the deck of cards, they picked up the first card, they read the first side of it, and then they put it to the side. Then they went to the next card, they picked it up, they read that card, they put it to the side. The cards were double-sided. There were rules on the back, but they just it just didn't occur to them to flip the card over, which, again, it's the kind of thing that I would never have guessed. Because if I get a card, I look at both sides. I'm just, it's just naturally what I do. And so about, I, I said that I don't often interject. With that one, I sat back for about five minutes, but the back of one of the cards had the end condition. So they were playing and playing and about five minutes in, they were like, wait a second, this game has no end. <laughs> and they didn't, again, they didn't think to look at the back of the cards. They were just like, we must have missed something and just kept on playing. So eventually I was like, okay, guys, I'm going to stop you. I'm, gonna, I'm breaking the rules of blind playtesting, but I'm going to stop you right now because there, there's the back of cards. They're like, oh, but I went back to my hotel that night. I always bring a printer with me to conventions because I like to prototype so quickly. I went back to my hotel and I rewrote all of those cards so that you only had to read one side and on the back were rules clarifications. So the front side would be like, here's how movement works. And the back would be like, if you run into this situation, here's how it resolves. On the front would be like, here's how you win. On the back would be, you know, in the case that no one wins in this time, here's the, here's the other victory condition. And then the next day I watched people and another group did the same thing. They only read the front. And they were able to play the entire game just by reading the front. 
And so it's, it's even better in a sense, because now you can lay all these cards in front of you on the front side, that's the rules. But if you ever have a question, you pick it up, you look at the back and you're like, oh, that's how that clarifies. Stuff like that, I never would have come up with by myself, but by blind playtesting, I saw people make a quote unquote mistake and was like, yes, that's way better than the system I had. Wow, that's really, really smart. And gosh, my daggum football brain. So uh, <laughs> I was watching this another video on YouTube and uh, Urban Meyer was talking about basically how he invented a new style of offense. And uh, it was because the running back, they were running this play and the running back was supposed to do one thing and he did something totally different. And because the way the play worked out, the running back ended up with the ball and just like took off and he like scored a touchdown in the middle of this like, you know, practice, just a normal practice, kind of like, you know, offense versus defense. We're just practicing running plays and stuff like that. And he did it. And, and Urban Meyer, the coach was like, wait, what, what was that? And he said, go, <laughs> come back, come back, do, do whatever you ju just did, do it again. Right. And he did it again. And it's like, and Urban Meyer and through a mistake through, you know, just seeing this yeah. ridiculous thing happen and the way it was blocked and the way it was carried out. It's like, oh, wow. And that one play gave him an idea about basically how to revolutionize his entire offense. And he ended up winning some uh, national championships. And so <laughs> this is yeah. a really good thing. Yeah. No matter if, whether you're doing toothpaste or football or a board game, apparently this is a really good system. It's all the same thing. I think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in my world, they are, man. So. I just need to create a, a board game about toothpaste. I already got one about football. And so a, a football board game about toothpaste. That's right. <laughs> toothpaste could be part of the, uh, the marketing and the, the sponsorships. You know, you're a player, you're trying to you know win football games and also get marketing opportunities for companies like, you know, yogurt and toothpaste. But yeah, actually I'm, I'm going to write that down. That's a, that's a good idea. <laughs> Um, a lot of these have been about how to make the game better, and that's obviously the, the goal. But there's also a lot of blind playtesting that will stop the game from being worse. So rather than rather than a, you know a purely positive improvement, it'll trim off some negative stuff. So a classic example is a rule that's very intuitive when you're there showing it to someone, but incredibly difficult to explain in writing. And this happens a lot with spatial games, where you'll be like, yeah, you just you just put the bits together like this, and you know, with my hands and the bits, I can show you in a second. But trying to write that rule, it'll be two pages of the rule book. <laughs> yeah. It'll just be like, yeah, so the, the red bits can't touch the blue bits because, of, and, and then if there's a green, you know, it's this incredibly convoluted thing to learn by the rules, even if in real life it's, it's very intuitive. And so I've I found a lot of the time getting those, not out of the way necessarily, but, but finding out what is hard and what is easy early on to learn from the rule book gives me almost a currency, uh, gives me a budget for how complex the rest of the game can be. Because if this one action that you do every turn takes people 20 minutes to learn from the rule book, you can't have all the complexity that you would have in a, in a game if that was, you know, as simple as draw a card. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think currency is a really good way to look at it. And just knowing that on average, you know, just kind of thinking through the average gamer and how much load their brain can handle at any given time, especially in the worst part of games, the rule book, the learning the rules yeah. is the worst part. And so you can only put on them so much. Now, if you're talking about gamers who love, you know, three plus hour heavy euros, yeah, yeah, obviously crunchy, it's a little different. Games. Yeah. And so you have to really know your target market. I think it's another thing. And what I love about Jellybean, you know who you're selling to, you know exactly who that person is. And then you can make these kinds of decisions based on how much load, how much, how many new ideas, how much uh, crunchiness to use a, a board game term they can handle. And then you go from there, I think, but thinking through it like currency, okay, they have a hundred currency, hundred dollars, hundred capacity. And I yeah. want to make sure if this thing is going to take 50, then I've only got 50 more. I can't put 75 on them and expect them to do well. I think it's a really good way exactly. to look at it. So we, uh, so I always do blind playtesting in two stages. I do it locally or, or at conventions like in person where, like I said, I'll hand you the rule book and I'll be like, learn this game. 
and I'll watch them learn the game and I'll take a bunch of notes. And then if it's a game that I'm publishing, we actually have a whole network of blind playtesters. So you can sign up to become a Jellybean playtester. And every time we have a new game coming out, we just do an email out to the newsletter and we say, hey, anyone who will download and print this game and then either record themselves learning it for the first time or play it 10 times and fill in a survey every time, we'll get a free copy of the game. It's, it's good for us because we get so much data. It's good for the people who want you know, a free copy of one of our games. And so I find that the entire blind playtesting process is useful, but particularly that for getting rid of rules exceptions. I am declaring a war on rule exceptions. I cannot stand them in games where I'm like, and I'm going to do this, this, this. Oh, wait. It's round four and I'm the th- fifth player, which means that I can only do this two times instead of three. Like any any little rules exceptions that just take you out of the game, I try to eliminate from especially Jellybean games, but also now my bigger games as well. And it makes them way better when you don't have to like have, again, it's the currency, you know, a rule that comes up twice a game is surprisingly expensive. If it happens every turn, sure, it's just part of the game. But if it happens, you know, once every two games or twice a game or anything of that frequency, you got to put a lot of brain bucks into into remembering that. And so blind playtesting is great for seeing what people will not remember, no matter how hard you try to make them remember. It just won't remember, and you have to rewrite the game around that. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think this is another challenge for uh, sports games. You know, I had I talked about sports games recently on the podcast and why they're so difficult to make and why people don't like them. But a lot of it is there's so many exceptions in sports, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, Absolutely. And- uh, do you know the game Bottom of the Ninth? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the first time I was ever in the US, I met uh, Daryl Lauder, the designer of that. He was like, hey, cool. Do you want to play this game? And I was like, okay, but I should warn you, I, I'm from Australia. We don't do baseball. I know that third strike, you're out and home base. That's the extent of my baseball knowledge. That's <laughs> it. And he was like, oh my goodness. I don't think we've ever had someone play this game who didn't at all know baseball. And within minutes, I was like, wait, what do you mean I get three balls? Like what? I thought the ball was the thing you throw. Why do I? Why do I have three of them? Like it was just all this jargon and all these rules exceptions that I had no idea about because I didn't know baseball that they'd treated as assumed knowledge. Yeah, for sure. And now one advantage I have is so my football game here in, here in Honduras, they play a very different style of football. And so I was able to actually take it to some of my high school students, these juniors and seniors and play it with them and say, Hey, okay, you know, nothing of the rules of football. And so I'm going to explain the game and we're just going to play. And they didn't have to know all the different rules, you know, at the end of a game, you can throw a Hail Mary as your last play. And like, it didn't matter. And the game, like if you, if you leave those rules exceptions out, the game still plays really, really well. And so I think, you know, if you're going to have rule exceptions, make sure they're okay. If the game still works, the game's still fun. Even if people totally forget them. Like, so if you're playing, if you're, if you're designing a sports game, you're going to have to have exceptions because you're trying to have some type of realism to a certain degree. Right. You, you know, it's a little simulation it has to be yeah exactly but at least make sure the game is still really fun and the game still works in case people f- totally forget you know versus a game where you have these rules exceptions and then you get to the end game scoring you're like oh i thought i had 100 points but i forgot about this and that and the other thing and i only have 80 and i lost yeah. and now i feel bad you know that's a very it's such a frustrating feel bad moment yeah absolutely uh, actually, related to that, it's funny. Um, one thing I've discovered from the blind playtesting process, and this is very counterintuitive, is that sometimes the players want rules exceptions, <laughs> which <laughs> which is not what you'd expect at all. But if it makes such thematic sense, so again, to go back to robots, the master robots moving around the board, now going on spaces, every time the master robot lands, it it clears that area of the board. That, that's that's kind of, it's a worker placement game where you never have a take workers back phase. The master robot clears the board and gets rid of all the workers that way. And so I would say play a worker. The worker would do a few things. One of those things was move the robot. The robot would move and destroy that worker. 
And so it's a rules exception to have that end your turn, but that's what the players wanted. The players were like, well, obviously I can't do anything else because the robot I just played was destroyed by the master robot. So I guess I'm done. And I'm watching that being like, the players just invented a rules exception that they want to see in the game. Huh, that's really, really interesting. Now with the uh, the group of players I play with in, in the States, when I'm home for the summer, I can see them creating rules exceptions to make them win. Well, you know, <laughs> this over here, it's only worth four points, but because I'm the purple player, it's worth 14 points. And uh, I win, you lose. I not can see that happening. Not, not exactly what I meant. <laughs> now, let me ask you about complex games. Actually, let me help me understand, like, give me some good parameters for basically how big is too big to do this effectively. You mentioned a little bit ago, like if the game's really big, really complex, this doesn't work quite as well. Give me just some yeah. guidelines for that. If it's a, So I go to a lot of conventions and... At a convention, it's pretty easy to get people to blind test a five-minute game. So French Toast is five minutes. You know, Village Pillage is 20 minutes, half an hour. And I was able to get people to blind test that pretty reliably. If you're talking a game where, I mean, I, I don't know how, how large the games you design are, but if you're like, hey, guys, do you want to play test my 90-minute game? That by itself is a struggle. Saying, hey, guys, do you want to blind play test my 90-minute game? Whew, you're really <laughs> You're really pushing it there. So I tend to save blind testing my larger games until... A, I know that like the rules are readable. And so I'll just I'll get my friends to just read through them. And ideally friends who haven't played the game, just read through the rules and be like, what questions don't make sense? And often they'll say, well, a lot of it I needed in person. But sometimes we'll be like, look, you you never mention how you win. Like you don't say at the start how you win the game. Uh, but the real way to get a, a large game blind tested is to build up some social capital. So, you know, go to a convention, make time with a friend, be like, hey friend, I only get to see you twice a year. Uh, I'd really like to hang out and I'd really like your help on this. And in return, you know, next time I'm in town, I'll watch your dog or something like that. You really, you can't just rely on the kindness of strangers if you're doing a very large game. You really need to be like, hey, I just play tested your games for three hours. Now will you blind test mine? That's about even, you know? <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Now, one thing I've had some success with, with some bigger games, with the 90 minute games, uh, as far as blind testing and, and not trying to overwhelm somebody, or, or maybe I just don't even have enough people. Maybe I really want to play it for, but I've only got one friend here, is I would simply blind test the setup. I will just hand them the rule book and I'll say, here's the box, here are all the components. I'm just going to sit here. I want you to teach me how to play this game. So I want you to set it up. I want you yeah. to tell me what works, like how the game plays, how movement works, combat, whatever it is. And I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to. I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to say, no, that's not how it works. I'm just going to mentally take notes or even write stuff down as you basically blind test the setup and the rules teach. And then when we get to the end, we're going to put the game back up in the box and we're going to go see a movie or go do something else. And Absolutely. I found, yeah, I found that to work really, really well. If you don't have enough players or it is a longer game, a bigger game, but you're still trying to get some, some blind testing in, uh, that, that's the one way to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'll often just be like, cool, can you can you learn the game from the rules and then just play two rounds? Like, yeah. it'll probably take about half an hour total and people are much more happy to commit to half an hour than they are to <laughs> potentially two hours. Uh, one thing that I found blind testing incredibly useful for is, and this is going to sound strange, it's for when people are bad at the game. So let, let's, say, let's say you've got a game with five players. In that game, four players are going to lose. So it's really important that your games, well, for, for me, it's really important that the games are fun to lose. It shouldn't be more fun to lose. It shouldn't be a, a drag to win. But you want to make sure that your game is fun, even if players are losing. And I don't know exactly what it is, but when I teach a game, I find that people tend to do a little better at it. So if I'm there to explain it, maybe it's because I give examples, or maybe it's like what you said earlier, where you're like, hey, don't forget about this part. But when I teach a game, people generally do pretty well at it. When people blind test, they're more likely to fail. And I don't mean fail by getting a rule wrong. I mean by playing correctly, but badly. 
And so I find, again, to use French toast as an example, it's a word game. It's a word guessing game where one person is essentially like the code master in code names. We call it the Toastmaster, And they're trying to get everyone else to guess a word. And if you are bad at that role, it's a very different experience. And if you're good at that role. So when I teach that game, I generally do the first round with me as the Toastmaster, then hand it over. People have seen how I do it. I've played this game thousands of times, so I'm good at it. So they're able to mimic that. When they're learning from the rules, they're coming at it from scratch. Like, I don't know if you ever played a game of Codenames with a bad Codemaster, but it's a whole different game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my aunt uh, was once playing and she she gave the clue green and everyone was like, oh, there's obviously grass and field. It turned out to be like army and apple or something. And we were like, well, <laughs> I can see how you got there, but she was so bad at the game that it, it was a very different experience. So by watching people be bad at the game, I'm again, taking a million notes as to how I can help on-ramp them from the rule book, how I can help make sure that losing this game is a fun experience so that ideally they'll play again and do better. Gotcha. Now, one thing I want to ask you about, a lot of people wait to do blind play testing late in the, the, the process because they want to wait until maybe the icons are more finalized, some of the art has come in, different things like that. They want to kind of give people a, a more full experience as far as the game goes. And so when, when you're doing this right off the bat, you know, the second time it's being play tested, you play tested by yourself, and now you're jumping right into blind testing. Tell me about your level of art, your level of graphic design. Like, how good does the game look? How good should I make the game look to do this uh, effect? So I have zero artistic ability. I am uh, I'm a visual thinker, but I I I couldn't draw to you know I couldn't draw a unicorn to save my life. I'm just terrible at art. But what I've found is the more I do this process, the better I get at communicating visually, which is different to being good at art. So a lot of my games are very icon driven. And that's partially because I just like the idea of, of having, uh, you know, language-free games. But it's also because I found that people respond better when they're staring at a table full of icons than they do when they're staring at a table full of text. You know, that's just going to completely overwhelm them. Yeah. So if if you decide to, to start doing it this way, you're probably going to find that people are really struggling with your graphic design, really struggling with the way you lay stuff out. But it will get you better at this faster than anything else because you're watching people suffer <laughs> and you're watching people suffer because of your inadequacy. And I can tell you, there is no greater motivator for getting better at something than being like, oh no, I've made these people suffer because I'm not good at this. You go home and you get better at it very, very quickly. Or, or just stuff like, you know, people will offer feedback. And we often talk about how getting feedback on UI is actually an annoying part of the process of playtesting. If you're doing a lot of blind playtesting, it's actually incredibly useful. People being like, look, using two different fonts here made this worse for me to, to play. I want my games, especially Jellybean games, to be incredibly accessible. And as well as being a publisher, I pitch. I pitch my games to publishers all the time. And publishers are going to play from the rules. They're going to have that first game experience. Some of them, sure, they're able to overlook that stuff and know what they're going to do. But wouldn't you rather give that publisher a more pleasant experience? Wouldn't you rather they didn't have to like overlook your terrible graphic design? I'm not saying I could be a graphic designer. I'm nowhere near that level. But I've definitely gotten good at communicating what my game needs you to know through graphics. Right. And this is definitely something I have seen personally, just kind of anecdotally, but also with other design friends that I have, is that the more time they have spent in this process, the better they've gotten, the better I have gotten at it. And so I think it's one of those things, a lot of times people are afraid to start doing this because they, oh, they're going to fail. You are going to fail. You're going to have yep. some terrible tests. They're going to go so poorly and you're going to feel so bad. You're going to go home and cry in the shower with your clothes on. Like, it's going to be bad. It's, yeah, it's rough. It's it's The reason I think of it as my secret source is because no one else is doing it because it is the most painful part of playtesting. Blind playtesting is the worst part of design, <laughs> but it really makes your games better. I cannot express how strongly I feel about you should like 
blind playtesting is obviously a part of my process as a publisher because we are going to publish a game. People are going to buy it from Box. As a designer, I cannot imagine pitching a game without blind playtesting it. I just, I always, always go through multiple blind playtests before pitching. And it really does make my game stand out. It really does mean that the, the publisher leaves not being like, oh, that was a that was a whole jungle of things to go through. They're like, oh, okay, I saw how that played. It lets you show off the best parts of your game without having to be like, now ignore this. Don't worry about that. Oh, let me explain that. It really, it makes the game better and it makes the presentation better. For sure. And it makes you as a designer better because when you make these mistakes, you typically don't make them again, right? And nothing I'm sitting here thinking about, it's so nice to blind test early because you're going to pick up on things that maybe you just don't have a natural affinity for. For instance, if right. you're not... Uh, colorblind, then it's so good to run into people who are colorblind and then have them go, Hey, I, I can't actually tell what these colors yeah. are. Is this, is this red? Is it, I don't, I don't know what this is. Or to have someone who's got dyslexia or someone who all the other, just name all the other accessibility issues out there. When you're blind testing early and often, you're going to run into more people who struggle with whatever that is. And you can go ahead and start making these changes early as opposed to, you know, at, towards the tail end of things when it's a lot more expensive potentially, because you've already, you know, you've already put some money into the colors of this yeah. thing. And now you got to, ah, uh, now needs, this needs to all be yellow and now I got to pay more money. And so anyway, doing it early and often, with totally different kinds of people makes it so much better both for how much money you're going to spend, but also just the game as a whole, because you can change it earlier versus going down to the end. Also another thing people run into and, and tell me maybe something you've seen in, in your process. Uh, it, it's kind of contrast to this. A lot of people will get into blind playtesting and maybe a problem presents itself, but maybe it's a problem bigger than what they want to fix or what they want to change. Cause they're already so invested or maybe it's a, that's like their favorite part of the game and they don't want to admit that it's broken. And so have you found that it's so much easier to change things? Like you don't feel like when you have to cut something, maybe something you really love, but it's only been around for two play tests. So, you know, it's not that big a deal. Absolutely. Have you found it to be easier? Yeah. 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 The earlier you can do the, so this is, like I said, the most grueling part of play testing. And the earlier you go through this, the more flexible you're able to be with your game design. You know, I can I can change stuff and be like, okay, look, I liked this idea, but it's not like I've been testing it for six months and everyone said, this is my favorite part. Now I'm like, okay, even if it's everyone's favorite, I mean, if it's everyone's favorite part, that's different. But even if everyone has always said, oh yeah, I like this, the fact that it's impossible from the rule book means that it, it can't be in the final game. So rather, it's way better to learn that now than, you know, a year from now. For sure. Now, continuing to talk about the suffering of your playtesters, how often do you just cut a, a playtest short? Like maybe the game just hasn't gone the way you want it to. It's gone off the rails. People are just so off. It's like, okay, we're just kind of wasting time. Do you have to cut things off early? Like, tell me some advice on that. So this is true of every playtest I do, whether it's blind playtesting or anything like that. I always, always, I think I talked about this in the last episode I was on. I always open with, hey guys, thanks for playing. We can stop at any time. The moment you don't want to do this anymore, please let me know. And I'm, I'm happy to stop like that. That's I flag that going in partially because I don't want to make people suffer. Like I say they suffer. It's kind of like, it's like watching someone do a puzzle, you know, it's frustrating, but hopefully a good frustration. It's suffering but in the most first world way ever. <laughs> 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 this game makes me hurt. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. Anyway, Absolutely. And so if, if they're actually having a bad time, I don't want them to be doing that. Like that's that's no good for me. That's no good for them. A, I don't want to make people have a bad time. And B, they're not going to do it again if they're having a bad time. Yeah. Uh, the other reason I do it too is because I wish people would say that to me. And so I end up having to end a lot of playtests early being like, okay, we've seen enough, you know, various diplomatic ways of ending it. Whereas if they'd said up front, we can stop this at any time, I would have stopped it, you know? So whether it's blind testing or not, I really recommend saying, hey, we can stop this at any time. And that way you never, you're never actually making people suffer where they pass where they want to. 
definitely. This is something I highly recommend. Just giving people the permission at the beginning to raise their hand and say, I'm not having fun anymore. I don't, can we stop? Can this be the last round? Just give them the permission. Cause a lot of people are nice. They're polite. They, they're, they think they're trying to help you by just kind of suffering through to finish out the game. And so just giving them permission just to say, Hey, you know, let's, let's, let's call this a day. Can we, can we talk about feedback right now? Cause more than likely at that point, you have enough notes, you have enough feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the learning is the key part. Once they get playing, that's kind of just bonus. Like I'll take it cause it's a play test, but it's not really what I'm there for. I'm there to see what makes sense in the game. What doesn't. And like I said, it's useful to watch at least a few rounds because if I'm like, man, you're meant to take an income every turn and no one ever takes it or three out of four times they forget it, or even one out of four times they forget it. That's something to flag. Uh, and, and like you said, there are definite downsides to doing this, especially so early. One is that you got to spend a lot more time in the rule book. And so, you know, if, if your game, I mean, I say that's a downside, but also it means that you go like, oh, wow, this rule book's going to be 20 pages. That's, I wasn't intending on making a rule game with 20 pages of rules. Right. I was trying to make a little light, simple game. What have I done? It makes you re-examine that stuff. But you do have to, A, get better at writing rules and B, spend the time to write it and then send it to people and have them read it and send it back and then bring it out and rewrite it. So it's more work. You know, nothing comes for free. It's a secret source, but it's got some pricey ingredients. Right. And this actually reminds me of some advice I got from Neil Gaiman. He did this. He did a master class and he talked about his design process, his writing process. And one of the things he does I thought was so interesting. He writes every single story, every single book, every script, everything. He writes it first in a notebook. He puts it on paper. And then he'll go and transfer it to his computer, you know, into Word or whatever. And one thing he talked about was how in doing that, if he, when, when he's going back through the notebook and reading, he'll see a part, oh man, this part's not any good. I'm not going to type, I'm not going to type that out. I'm just going to cut that. And he said, it feels good because this is less work for me to put it into the word processor. I'm not, exactly. he said, but on the opposite side, he said, if I had written this whole thing out in Word and then I read it again and then I realize, oh, that's, that's not, that's a bad, that's a bad part. And I have to cut it then it feels worse because I'm, I'm taking it away versus not adding it in. And I thought that was a really interesting way maybe to do rule books or, or something like that. That is such a great analogy because so often I will sit there and fiddle with the game and you know do it all and play it myself. And then I'll go to write up the rules. And I'll be like, man, when I'm explaining this to someone, it's a sentence. You know, uh, every, every time you go to the market, grab an extra food or whatever, something like that. But now that I'm putting in the rule book, I have to think, okay, what if there's no food left? What if I go to the market twice in a turn? What if I do an extra action lets me go to the market as a freebie? Suddenly this single sentence is an entire half page of rules exceptions, essentially. And so this ties into what I was saying earlier about rules exceptions, but it's a little bit more than that. It's, you know, you want to keep your rules as slim as possible. The, the ideal game, and maybe this is not universally agreed, but in my mind, the ideal game has as few rules and as much fun as possible. That's the ratio I'm always, always going for. And so this rule that when you speak it is very, very short is now half a page. You got to ask yourself, is that half a page worth it? And I find most of the time it's just not. I cut so much after just, like you said, transferring it into the rule book or blind playtesting. I'm like, man, people are not remembering that. I can spend a bunch of resources and I can spend a bunch of design time and I can make sure that they remember it. There's tricks to do that, but is it worth it? Like, really? Is that extra one food every time you go to the market going to make the game half a page more fun? And the answer is almost always no. And so again, my games are just more streamlined than a lot of games that I see, a lot of prototypes that I see, because that's part of my process. Right. And if we go back to the idea of currency, people understand, it's so important for designers to understand, every rule in your rulebook is one more obstacle 
between the players getting to the actual game. And so if they sit yes. down and they're excited, right? They just pulled this game off the shelf, pulled it out of the shrink wrap, just got it in the mail from you know a Kickstarter campaign they backed a year and a half ago, and they're so excited to finally get it to the table, good to go. And then they pull out the rule book. And now basically the excitement is going to go down over the next X number of minutes as they try to figure out how do I play this game. And so what would have started as a ton of excitement, a ton of just like, all right, can't wait to do this. Now it's going to go down at a pretty solid rate until they can actually start playing the game. And so how much do you want them to bottom out (laughs) trying to learn your rule book? I mentioned at the start of my podcast, my friends who are new to games. And like I said, watching them learn has been fascinating because if a game has too much setup, they won't play it. It's not that it's, uh, you know, they're, they're not angry at the game or anything like that. But when they're mentally calculating which game to play, they think, you know, oh, great, this one's shuffled a deck of cards. This one's put a few things out. Oh, yeah, this one we have to put this here and that here and that here. And through the blind playtesting process, you will learn how much setup your game has because that's where a lot of the mistakes will be made. You're like, cool, put three cards out face up in, in this area forgetting that you have five different types of cards. And so the first thing you need to do is work out which card is which, then sort them, then put those ones out. What if they put the wrong ones out? Halfway through the game, they're like, oh no, we set up incorrectly. Like setup is one of the areas where I think a lot of fat could be trimmed from a lot of games. And blind playtesting, I think you'll find really makes you aware of your setup, especially because like we were saying earlier, you'll probably run the setup part of blind testing more than anything. And yeah, the more you can clean it up, the better your game's going to be. I totally, totally agree. Now, let me ask you this. Whenever you're doing this early on, how complete are the games, right? Do you have end goals in place? Do you have, like, is the game fully, completely playable where people could start or set it up, start it, go through the middle, finish it? Or do you ever do this and not even have an end goal in mind yet? You're just trying to test the gameplay? Like, tell me about that. So I'm I'm unusual in that sense. I have, I have a good friend who's a designer who will bring out a game and be like, hey, I've got a mechanism here. Let's, let's fiddle around. And I, I'm always happy to help him with that. But I can't do that with my designs. I always need beginning, middle, end. I need a complete package that... Even if I know the end's not going to be good, it just at least has an end. And that's partially because I like as a player, I always want to know what I'm trying to work towards. Like, what am I incentivized to do right now? And without an end, I find that too blurry to really be able to, to get into it. So not uniquely to blind playtesting. I always have a beginning, middle, end every time I bring a game out just because that's how my brain works. But if, if you're not like that, I don't know, I could... Yeah, I don't think blind playtesting is great. I mean, for me, that's the pre-blind playtesting phase is you know let's meddle around with an idea let's 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 kick around some components let's jam basically i was thinking of it as as jamming you don't need to blind playtest to jam it's only when you've got an actual game as in beginning middle end that that's when i think it's useful gotcha makes a lot of sense let me ask you this i know a lot of people listening to the show they struggle to find playtesters they struggle to find people just to even read their rule book and that kind of thing. I know you do a lot of testing at conventions and stuff like that, but give me some more as far as like more advice on how do you find people to do the blind testing? Like what would you tell somebody who maybe lives kind of out in the middle of nowhere? Maybe they can't get to very many conventions. What would, what should they do? So I'll say that is definitely the hardest part. That is, that is the bit that I, even I struggle with. That's part of why I go to so many conventions because it's just an infinite stream of new blind play testers. The two things that I do are, I use my non-game design friends. So, you know, you've got your local game designer group, or if you don't, you really should. It's the most valuable thing any game designer can have is a regular group. Maybe use them to jam. Maybe use them to make sure the game works. Once you've got it working, once once you're happy with it, it doesn't need to be like final and balanced. But once you've got a game where you're like, okay, I know this is fun from start to finish, that's maybe when you call in a favor for a friend. So my two friends who are new gamers, the ones I've been talking about, I will often use them for blind playtesting, despite the fact that they have never been to a playtest in their life. They're not there to, to playtest a game. 
but I use them because they're the consumers. Once the game's done, that's the kind of people who are going to be opening it and playing it. And so game designers make great blind playtesters, but I think consumers actually make better ones. The other thing you can do is you can maybe go online, maybe go to the Board Game Design Lab Facebook group and like try to do an exchange. Find another group who you've never spoken to, you've never met, and say, you send me your game, I'll send you mine, I'll record me learning your game, you record me learning yours, let's let's exchange games and it's worth it for both parties. I get to see, you know, I get mine tested, you get yours tested. It's great for everyone. So that, those would be my, my two tips if you're able to do that. Right. And you make a really, really good point. It's so important to test your game with people who would be the potential buyers, right? Because you might be testing it with game designers, who, which is awesome. It's phenomenal. They're going to have a really cool angle, really cool way to look at things. But if they're not the kind of gamer that you're going to be selling to, then you really have to take everything they say with a grain of salt because they're not they're thinking from a game designer standpoint, not from a, hey, I like this game, I want to buy it standpoint. And so it's so important just to understand that difference and make sure you're finding people that are the target market for the actual Absolutely. game. And the thing is too, if, if, you're, if you're not a game designer, then it can be exciting. Like my friends make a little party of it. They invite a bunch of friends over and they're like, hey, what are we doing tonight? Oh, we're blind playtesting Peter's game. And because I'm not after, it's going to sound weird, I'm not, I'm not specifically looking for game feedback. You know, they're not, they're not designers. They, they, some of them are not really gamers. But for them, it's like a, a fun night of we know this game is going to work. It's just like if we're having a normal game night, you know, because they have game nights. If we come around to play Code Names or come around to play Pandemic or whatever, it's like that. But with a game that's not published, it's kind of exciting for them. It's not a chore. It's not a drag. It's like, ooh, we get to play a game before it's even out. And like I said, if, if you blind test my games, uh, and I don't do this at conventions, but you know, if, if you're holding a night just to blind test my game, I will absolutely give you a free copy of the game when it comes out. Like that's such valuable information for me that I, I can buy you a copy of the game to make it that much better. Yeah, I think it's so important to make sure you are making making absolutely sure that your playtesters feel thanked, that they feel well, you know, like welcome to do this as far as like you're going to maybe buy pizza or give them a game or put their name on right. the, in the rule book or like whatever it is, just making sure people feel loved, they feel appreciated for, because like you're saying, this is very, very valuable information. And so always make sure people walk away from the table feeling like uh, you really, really appreciated uh, their work, even if they told you your game sucked and it was awful and it's the yeah. worst thing you ever did. Like that's still really that's valuable, helpful. Valuable feedback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. So what else? Any other aspects of the secret sauce that we haven't gone into? Any other things that you want to make sure you bring up? Yeah. So one last thing I'll say is that another unexpected side effect of this is I found it makes my games more balanced. And just like I was saying, when, you, uh, when you're teaching a game, people generally are better at it. When you're teaching a game, I think unconsciously or something about the way that you teach it tells people what you expect them to do you know this is the expected path to victory this is what you should be doing just even in the way that you explain the game and maybe run a sample turn they're like okay this is what the game looks like when they're learning from the rule book you don't have that and so just like it's really useful for people who are bad at the game to make sure they're having a better experience it's people who are going to think outside the box they're going to think i think of blind testing as accelerating all the normal play testing so it's not only making, you know, not only getting feedback on the game, it's getting hyper feedback. You know, everything that you get from a normal playtest, you get twice as much or 10 times as much from a blind playtest. And so I have actually had to rebalance entire games based on like, because I didn't teach it to them, because they learned it from the rule book, they saw a path that I'd never thought of, that no one else had ever thought of when I taught them. 
and they completely dominate or you know they they make sure that accidentally they make sure that one player never gets a turn it's it's impossible for all these weird interactions to have through blind playtesting that i don't see through normal playtesting so the the other real benefit is that it makes my games again kind of counterintuitively much more balanced because they learned it from the rule book gotcha yeah that's it's so awesome like we we're saying before a lot of people wait to the very very end to do this type of testing and so they're therefore they wait to the very very end to do the balancing and so that means they're gonna you're gonna probably miss stuff and uh, i think we've all played a published game that was probably tested pretty extensively <laughs> but still had some very serious balance issues where maybe that wouldn't have been the case had they play tested or blind tested even earlier in the process than they did right. now is there any way that you're you're trying to improve this process so you've been how long have, first of all how long have you been doing it this way so ever since my third game, which is Leading the Tiger, I've I've done the blind playtesting where we send it out to people and they do it, you know, they record a video of themselves learning the game and they send it back and, and they get a free copy. So that part's been a part of my process for a very long time. But the thing where I do it early really started at the end of 2017. So a couple of years now, actually, uh, where I was just like, you know what? I know how this game works. I've played it against my husband. I know it's fun. So let's see how the rules go. And oh my goodness, yeah, I've, I've never gone back. Ever since then, if I can blind playtest it, I will blind playtest it. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're like, hey guys, uh, I want to play this game. I want to blind test it. Like, well, we don't really have time for that. So for, fine, you know, obviously a normal playtest isn't bad. I'm not saying don't ever normal playtest. I do that a lot still. But if I have the opportunity to do a blind test, every time you see me at a convention, I'll have a folder full of rules because I just want to get my games blinded as much and as, as often as I can. Gotcha. And so anything going forward that you're wanting to improve, any ways to do it differently, do it better, anything like that? So I mentioned earlier that the more I do this, the better I get at visually communicating. I have found that nothing helps people more than reference cards and diagrams. So now even in my first version of the rules, I will often take the take the 20 minutes to you know open Photoshop and put together a diagram of how it works because it just gets people through those rules that much faster. And I, I have reference cards for... Like we have, we have a series, the Treasure Hunter series, which are the simplest games you'll ever play. They take five minutes. They all have reference cards just because I found it such a boon. So the biggest change I've made recently is putting those diagrams in, getting those reference cards in as early as I can. And again, even if I'm not blind playtesting, it's useful to have that reference card. But if I am blind playtesting, it takes five, 10 minutes off the read. Like it really speeds things up and makes it a more pleasant experience for everyone, which lets them get to the game faster, which lets them see the fun faster. Very cool. Well, Peter, this has been this has been great. Any kind of closing thoughts? You know, anyone sitting there trying to figure out maybe their own secret sauce or maybe a way to kind of borrow your your design process or maybe kind of tweak it for themselves? What would you tell somebody in a, just basically to close things out? Uh, be prepared for an unexpected amount of suffering, both from you and from your playtesters. And don't don't seek it. Don't go out trying to make people suffer. But watching people struggle through your rules. And I'm going to say badly written because the first set of rules are always badly written. Watch, watching people struggle through your badly written rules is a humbling and painful experience, but it really does make the game better. It sharpens the game. It smooths out the game. It just makes the whole experience much better. It makes the end product much better. But, you know, even if there's a little bit of suffering to get there. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, man, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about that one. Yeah. So Night of the Mummy is coming out. It's been... This one has been extensively blind play tested, and it is the sequel to Dracula's Feast New Blood. Dracula's Feast is one of our most popular games. It's a, I call it a logical deduction game. It's like a social deduction game, but with a lot more logic to it, and you never end up shouting at each other. Everyone has a different role. Everyone has a different ability, and you win the game by working out who everyone is. The cool thing about this is that Dracula's Feast is one of our biggest hits. This is a standalone sequel to Dracula's Feast, so you can pick this up without having played the original, but if you do have Dracula's Feast, you can combine them together. So... 
each game has 10 roles. So now you've got basically one 20 role game. So you can mix and match the roles however you like, creating all kinds of replayability. It's incredibly fun. Uh, Nightofthemummy.com. It's up on Kickstarter, only $19 until sometime in April. Awesome. Well, Peter, again, really appreciate you coming back on the show. Really appreciate you just kind of giving us the behind the scenes look at your game design process. Good luck with all the games and your Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks so much, Gabe. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?